Hello, adventurers. Are you looking for an actual play with excitement, humor, narrative, lore, and character development without all the sidebar and pop culture goofs? Look no further than Lawful Great Adventures. What makes Lawful Great Adventures so great? Our goal is to stay in character for the duration of the episode as much as possible without a bunch of sidebar, without a bunch of talking about stats, and deliver you a story worth listening to through the eyes of our four characters, Theo, Finn, Fane, and Warren, as they journey across a hostile world trying to get home. We are hosted on Anchor. Check us out on Twitter at great underscore lawful, Facebook, Lawful Great Adventures, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thank you. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school paper-and-dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Previously on Tale of the Manticore, the last episode began with Eridine's level up. At this point, all surviving player characters have achieved level 2. They'll each need to make it through another 12 episodes before they attain level 3. Other than Aradine's advancement, we saw the negotiations and subsequent battle with the goblin brute Vashuk and his forces, which included a direwolf. The party's goal was to save the two prisoners with as little bloodshed on their side as possible. To this end, Umura had prepared a gambit in which she posed as a powerful witch. Given that she had special information and was aided by a fake magical artifact, her ruse went well, at least it did for a while. The first part of her plan aimed to defuse the danger of being ambushed. This part of the plan was very successful. The second part did not succeed, however. Umora tried to convince Vashuk to allow her to cast a spell on him. If she'd been persuasive enough, he would have allowed it, expecting some kind of permanent empowerment. Of course, Umora would simply have cast Charm Person. Had she pulled this off, the party might have avoided combat altogether, but this was not to be. Something caused the fiction to waver, and then break. Once combat began, it was brief and brutal. Both sides were hit hard. Umura was splashed with the mini green slime that Vashuk kept in a clay pot at the ready. It seems that the goblin brute was not without his tricks as well. Sadly, near the point of victory, one of the goblin archers got lucky and killed poor Eiffelt in a single hit. The fight came to a standstill after Vashuk and the warg were defeated, 
and the hostage takers decided to make their play. Eredin made a heroic shot, saving the dwarven prisoner, and Umura brought combat to an end with her remaining spell. Chapter 15, Part 1, Day 15, Sunset, Party Status, Captain Tor, 8 out of 17 hit points, Riley the Roach, 7 out of 7 hit points, Thern, 19 of 19 hit points, Harl, 5 out of 5 hit points, Kagan, 14 out of 16 hit points. Gyrios, 11 of 14 hit points. Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points. Umura, 3 of 10 hit points. Almighty Mazagar, giver of the sun, we mere mortals pray in your sight. We glory in your sight as we are born from darkness to the light. And we shall join you when prayers are done. Return into the darkness and earth. Descend into the darkness and earth. We praise you from the first day of our birth. Gyrios, now wearing Eiffel's suit of mail without the tabard, and with Vashuk's flail hanging from his belt, performed the last rites for the two fallen soldiers as they were laid into the earth. The party had chosen a spot, still in the ravine yet some distance away from the cave mouth. Shallow graves had been dug by torchlight. They'd worked quickly with shovels and picks found in the storage cavern. The men and women leaned on their tools as the priest, his face transformed by the evening dark and flickering torchlight, concluded the prayer. The last rites were short, but Captain Tor's eulogy was briefer still. They fulfilled their oath and gave their lifeblood in service to the king. May their memory remain in our hearts. May, May the memory, memory remain, remain in, in our hearts. hearts, echoed some of the others. And then the two bodies, wrapped in their tabards, disappeared bit by bit under shuffleholes of earth. After, Tor and Thern decided that the party would make camp in the guardroom. It was not very large, but at least it was free of corpses and bats. As it was close to the cave mouth, the air might have been passably fresh if it had not been for the two heads mounted on pikes outside the entrance. Tor insisted they not be taken down. Consequently, the smell of rot and urine occasionally wafted through the tunnels as the companions settled down on the hard floor. Whatever comfortable materials they could find, backpacks, and some leather goods taken from the storage cave went to give comfort for the rescued prisoners. The woman, it turned out, was a good wife, farmer, and sometimes drover from Brennan. She had been making the once-per-season trip to Burke with her two sons when she was captured. Their cargo, she said, was mostly made up of the types of vegetables that were difficult to farm in Burke, and the products made from them, such as milled grains and apples. They also had hops and a few jugs of cider. She told them that one of her sons had definitely been killed on the road during the attack. The other one, she dared to believe, had escaped. Her name was Aurea Santanir, 
of the Centenia farm, she added. Oria had clearly endured much at the hands of the goblins, Umora and Eredin knew better than the others, but she seemed grounded, clear-headed, and aware that the greatest danger was over. When she spoke, she talked only of home and of finding her lost boy. The dwarf, it turned out, was indeed Molgi. Umura felt heartbroken that Soli could not have been there to rejoice in his brother's liberation, but at least they had done it. Molgi was not in very good shape, physically or mentally. His eyes appeared dull, he said almost nothing, and the little he did say came out sounding thick and strange, like something being squeezed through too small a hole. Like Oria, Molgi had been tormented by the goblins. Both of them had patches of hair missing, presumably yanked out or burned off. Molgi had lost half of his beard and several teeth. Clearly the goblins had made a game of defacing him. They did not notice at first, since the dwarf kept his hands perpetually clenched into fists. But the goblins had removed the first three fingers of his left hand. Only the thumb and pinky remained. Harl and Thern took care of him, as he seemed only able to relax in the presence of other dwarves. On more than one occasion, however, Harl returned to Aradine to express his gratitude. You will forever be a friend to the High Forge, Mistress Sheris. When not with Molgi, Thern split his time between strategizing with Tor and discussing languages with Umura, whom he found more and more fascinating as he grew to know her better. The question of what to do with the three goblin prisoners was not long an issue, as, directly following the burial, Captain Tor left the group without a word, walked to Vashuk's cavern, and executed all three of them. When he returned, he was smeared with black blood and wore a trio of scratches on his cheek. Umura was not upset by the loss of her thrall. She would have happily done it herself. Over the evening, the entire cave complex was searched, and everything of use was collected into the guardroom. Most items of value that should have been there, including, it turned out, Gyrios's original holy symbol, were gone, sent off to augment the wealth of the goblin chief. There were no maps or any other information found that might have revealed the location of the goblin's main base. There were quite a number of mundane items, mostly in the storage room. These included a 50-foot-long coil of rope, a pair of light crossbows, and a box of 40 bolts that had once belonged to the dwarves Nofer and Dasen. Mulgi's knife was also recovered and returned to him. Other than that, there were a lot of leather goods, including belts, boots, gloves, and aprons, all sized for dwarves, and several clay pots containing various tannins and other agents used in the curing and preparation of skins. There were also several items redistributed from the dead, including Vashuk's flail and Eiffel's chainmail and shield, all taken by Gyrios, and Eiffel's helmet, now worn by Kagan. Mun's shield also went to Kagan. His spear was to be taken back to Burke and given to the man's family, as it was the only viable memento that was not destroyed by acid and fire. Eiffel's spear was put aside by Tor for a special purpose. The only really valuable items were to be found in the secret box provided by Umura's thrall. She carefully sorted through and counted everything before announcing the contents. 156 gold pieces and 321 of silver. There's jewelry too, a silver chain and a golden brooch. This is interesting. Look, a tiny crystal vial with some liquid inside the color of, well, I'd say something like a robin's egg, I suppose. I can look more closely at that later. There's also a pair of bird skulls painted red, probably just lucky charms, and a rotten, empty leather purse. That's it. 
The rotten, empty leather purse was neither rotten nor empty. Umura had noticed the tiny embossed monogram of a letter A, and a quick check of the contents had confirmed her suspicions. Later, when they were alone, Umura wordlessly returned the purse containing the thieves' tools to its original owner, who tucked them between her belt and the small of her back with a barely audible, Thank you. Dramatis Personae, Mulgi. Mulgi is a level one dwarf, brother to Soli, and a son of the Skundramoir. Like Soli, Mulgi has gray eyes. He used to be fun-loving and happy-go-lucky, but now, when Mulgi looks at people, he seems somewhat unfocused, as though he were looking through them. Another physical trait in common with his late brother is his prominent nose, a scar runs down the left side of it now, where a goblin had pressed Mulgi's own knife against it and threatened to cut it off. His hair and beard, once glossy black, is now dull and streaked with gray. No longer braided, the beard sticks out wildly, except in the places where it's been pulled out or burned off. About 20% of the dwarf's face has been burned badly enough that the beard will never grow back in those spots. Mulgi is slightly shorter and younger than Soli had been, measuring four feet, four inches tall, and weighing 140 pounds normally. Currently, the dwarf's weight is much lower, as the goblins rarely fed him during his confinement, which lasted over three weeks. Mulgi's body is covered with bruises, cuts, and burns, most of which will heal given time and treatment. Much more significant permanent damage has been done to the dwarf's left hand, where the first three fingers were cut off over the course of a new dice game dreamt up by the goblins. During this game, each goblin player had chosen one of Mulgi's hands to keep score on. The game was meant to go to five points, the loser being the goblin who'd run out of dwarf fingers. Vashuk at first found this game highly amusing and watched with delight, until he suddenly realized that his slave's value dropped with every finger removed. Vashuk had flown into a rage, punished both dice throwers, and forbidden any further permanent damage to their captives. In addition to the physical, Mulgi has suffered and will never fully recover from psychological trauma sustained almost constantly over the course of his capture. Dwarves are the natural enemies of goblins, and so Mulgi's torment was unrelenting. As a result, he will be, for a long time to come, emotionally numb in his relationship with others, as well as periodically paranoid, irritable, and irrational. He will suffer from insomnia most nights, and the sleep he does manage to get will be plagued by nightmares. Although he was rescued, it might be truly said that part of Mulgi died in the caverns of the Kingswood. Welcome 
to DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. Level up your RPG campaigns by filling yourself with stories and knowledge. Explore topics from archaeology to film history to writing to literature and much, much more. This is DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 15, Part 2, Day 19, Pre-Dawn, Party Status, Mulgi, 6 out of 6 hit points, Aureus Antonier, 2 out of 2 hit points, Captain Tor, 17 of 17 hit points, Riley the Roach, 7 out of 7 hit points, Thurn, 19 of 19 hit points, Harl, 5 out of 5 hit points. Kagan, 16 of 16 hit points. Eridine, 8 out of 8 hit points. Gyrios, 14 of 14 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield and Light. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. When the sun rose the next day, the party did not return to Burke as Gyrios had hoped and expected. Instead, Captain Tor insisted that they stay to wipe out the entire goblin nest. Tor explained that the goblins could not be spared and left to harm a single other innocent. The look in Tor's eyes, however, told a different story. Oria at first resisted the idea, but Tor firmly told her that it was a command, not an idea and that if she wanted to take her chances on her own in the wilderness, she was free to do so. Oria almost did, but the good wife was not a fool, and knew her chances of survival were better if she stayed with the group. Over the next few days, as the party prepared for, and then watched for, the return of the raiding party, Gyrios discovered that his power to heal, along with other potential abilities, came to him every dawn. He used this power to heal everyone in the group to their maximum hit points by the time the raiders were spotted. The spell, Cure Light Wounds, can heal 2 to 7 points of damage to the recipient. I did all the dice rolls for the healing off mic. In retrospect, I'm not sure I needed to, as between the cleric's ministrations and natural 1 point per day healing, I think every member would have maxed out, even if every roll had produced the minimum benefit. After the third day, Tor started posting all-night lookouts in more than one spot. Thurn and Harl showed him the path the raiders had taken when they left on their excursion, so Tor expected them to take the same route back and positioned his sentries appropriately. A kind of crow's nest was constructed using rope and leather in one of the trees that stuck out 90 degrees over the cavern mouth and some 60 feet above it, although it was not meant to be used as a watchtower. We'll come back to that soon enough. There's one last thing we need to work out before these goblins return home. Part of the treasure the party got from defeating Vashuk and his forces was a potion. This is our party's first magic item. We need to lay out how we'll deal with identifying items like this and other types that we might encounter in the future. The rules in basic D&D are pretty simple regarding identifying magic items. An item must be used in order to identify it. I think this will work out in some cases, 
but not in others. I've decided to treat potions the same way I treat magic spells. A successful intelligence check will indicate a successful identification. A failed check will just mean that the character doesn't know and will have to wait until the next level attained to try again. I'll adjust these rules as we go, if need be. To find out what kind of potion Umura has, I'll roll against the list in the basic rulebook. There are eight types here, so I'll roll a die eight and use the table given. The roll is a six, so the potion is... Oh, how interesting. This is a potion of invisibility. But can Umura identify it? Let's find out. I'll do an intelligence check. The roll is a nine. She recognizes this from her long training in alchemy. It makes sense to me that she gives this to Eridine to hold on to. Shh. I need to quiet down now before I give our location away. If you listen closely, you can hear those goblins. They're not far off now. They made their way back by moonlight. Almost there now. But not one of them looked forward to being home. Ever since the human had died, they had argued incessantly. More than a full day of bickering, every one of them was irritable. Irritable and fearful. This raid had not been a success. The ambush itself had seemed to go well. The man driving the cart filled with arrows until he slumped forward in his seat, and the horse stopped moving. After, they had thrown their heavy net over the woman and beaten her until she stopped screaming. When they left the road, they had a prisoner, a dozen bags of food, and goods from the wagon, and there had been enough horse meat to satisfy all twenty of them. They were happy. The problems hadn't begun until the evening of the next day. As the sun set below the tree line, they rechecked their plunder and discovered with dismay that much of it was useless to them. They hadn't paid much attention when they'd taken it, they'd just shoved as much as they could fit into their bags. Now they saw that much of the take wouldn't be worth the effort even to carry back. What would they do with the white powder humans made from grass? Useless. The bags of clothing might as well be abandoned too. They would be too big to fit any of them except for Vashuk, and he wouldn't want them anyway. Speaking of their leader, he would be angry. They all knew it. If this did not guarantee a beating for each one of them, the other problem would. After the inventory was found to be useless human garbage, the reality of their failure became fear, and then fear turned to anger. They blamed each other. The driver should have been taken prisoner, not killed. They should have let this wagon pass and waited for a better target. Unwilling to manifest their feelings toward each other, they had beaten their captive savagely. When the bag over her head muffled her cries of pain and surprise, the goblins found it unsatisfying so they removed it to properly hear her suffering. When they did, they discovered that the woman was not nearly as young as they had thought. Being small, they had assumed they had captured a fresh human girl child. Instead, they found an old woman. The severity of their beatings increased, but they ended quickly. The prisoner had stopped moving. The human had died under their fists, claws, and clubs. Now they'd be returning to Vashuk, almost empty-handed. And so it was that they approached their home with feelings of dread. Preoccupied with their own problems, they failed to notice that no guards were posted at the entrance. They continued down the tunnels and into the large cavern. The bats, now used to the small movements of the goblins who lived there, did not stir. 
So the commotion didn't begin until they reached Vashuk's room itself. In it, a spear had been planted in the very center of the floor. Impaled on it, so that the tip pierced the top, was their leader's head, crawling with flies. All at once, the air was full of their voices. They glared wildly about the room for signs of an ambush, but found only piles of bodies. Here, the warg, unmoving against the wall. There, four of their tribe crumpled in a pile. Whoever had done this was gone. The goblins whooped and screeched in rage. The bats in the other room caught the alarm and swarmed the cave, flapping their wings in a black cloud of panic. One of the goblins turned, drew his sword, and sprinted back toward the entrance. Most of the other goblins, unsure what to do, followed. When they arrived, they found the cave mouth as still and silent as it had been when they'd entered. But then, out of the darkness, a twinkle of light flashed like a star that had fallen among the trees. The tiny bright light flew toward them and stopped at their feet. It was so bright, it was almost blinding. But when they lowered their hands from their eyes, they could see that it was just an arrow. One of the feathers in the fletching was the source of the light. It shone brightly enough to paint the cavern walls around them with distorted goblin shadows. They had no time to puzzle through what was going on. As soon as the arrow hit the ground at their feet, something wet and sticky fell from the sky. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps the show reach a wider audience, and it lets me know I'm doing a good job. A big thank you to at ThatNerdShrike, who answered my tweet and provided the name Aurea Santanir for one of today's characters. Aurea was voiced by Megumi from the Delagarden RPG podcast. Megumi, I really appreciate your contribution to the show, and I sincerely encourage everyone listening to check out the Delagarden podcast. I'm a faithful listener, and I'm sure you will be too. To all you folks who have left five-star reviews, with or without comments, I want you to know how grateful I am. If I haven't thanked you personally, please get in touch. I'm easy to find on Instagram, or contact me on Twitter using at manticoretail. Taleofthemanticore at gmail.com is yet another way for us to get in touch. And we should. For rants, musings, show notes, and occasional maps, character sheets, tables, and other items related to the show, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Nat 20 on that perception check, you found The Wandering Portal, your new source of cute notebooks, funny stickers, and custom character sheets, all inspired by your favorite tabletop games and gaming media. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Wandering Portal. Are you a podcast host or an adventuring group with a killer name? The Wandering Portal is now taking commissions. Spice up your brand with a new logo. Turn your highlights into some merchandise that will grow your community. Contact us at thewanderingportal at gmail.com for more details.